Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here from the world headquarters of Velo News. Another week of pro cycling uh, jibber jabber coming into your ears. Uh, I have a great guest today. A guy I'm really excited about. Patrick Redford wrote about cycling for the website Deadspin for the last four or five years. You may have read one of his blogs. He was one of the mainstream writers who every now and again would take our niche sport and bring it to a big mainstream audience. And I'm going to talk to Patrick all about what made a good Deadspin cycling blog. Uh, if you've been following the news, you may have read that all of the writers at Deadspin recently basically walked out of the job because the owners were trying to mess with the content, really try to alter what Deadspin was doing. So we're going to talk to Patrick all about that experience uh, before we get to Patrick Redford, however, though, we have to talk about what's going on in the world of cycling. Uh, a lot going on. We're going to talk a bit more about the Amgen Tour of California going away and the state of road racing in North America, because there's been some interesting news in the last week that we had on the site, which is that uh, World Tour writer Peter Stetna, veteran of the World Tour, has chosen to abandon his uh, road racing career and is racing now full time on gravel. And it's just another, just a, kind of another step in the larger story of gravel coming up and American road cycling trying to figure out what it's going to be. So we are going to talk all about uh, Pete Stetna's decision to go to gravel and endurance mountain biking. And I am psyched to talk about that with Mr. Andrew Hood, the guy who actually broke that story. Andy, you talked with Peter Stetna. What did he have to say? Yeah, hi Fred. Yeah, it was it was one of those uh, you know those little mini scoops you get sometimes just by asking a dumb question, right? As a journalist, a lot of times your best uh, best stories just kind of fall into your lap. I called up uh, Pete talking about the Tour of California, and that was a big part of his career when he was a racer. He'd raced it as a young guy, and you know he's a California guy now. So he was one of the guys we were reaching out to last week or two weeks ago when the Tour of California announced the big news that it was ending hiatus. We still haven't got the total confirmation that it's RIP, but it's a hiatus right now still officially. But then I said, well, hey, Pete, you know, what are you doing next year? And he goes, well, hey, Hoodie, I'm glad you asked. And then uh, we got into it and, and uh, really kind of a, a big story, right, in terms of what this means. I mean, here, here's a guy, one of the top uh, world tour pros, uh, a staple on, on the scene from America, been at world tour level for 10 years. Uh, he's had some health issues the last couple of years, but, you know, 2009, he was back at his best and by his own uh, choice decided to walk away from what you know, he says was his childhood dream was to race in places like the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia, of course, coming out of the whole tradition of the Stetna family who were pioneers in the American road scene back in the day. And to turn away from that and to uh, really become a privateer, kind of forge some new paths into the dusty roadways of gravel racing, the burgeoning scene. So quite an interesting story. Yeah, I think there's a lot going on here. and We can unpack it from one topic to the next. Um, your, you have two stories about this up on VeloNews.com, and I suggest everyone go and read these, um, you know, to see Pete explaining why he decided to move away from road racing to gravel and just sort of the opportunities, you know, what this means and how we've seen a number of riders, um, you know, really focus on versatility and, and break out of the road cycling mold. So I think it's, first of all, interesting that he says he's following his passion. Uh, in your story, uh, Stetna said that, you know, when he was – at these gravel races in 2019, he famously um, baked in 
a number of gravel and mountain bike races to his 2019 world tour road racing calendar. He said, Hey, you know, Trek, let's go back. I'll race on the world tour, but I still, I want to be able to do the Belgian waffle ride. I want to do dirty Kansas. I want to do Leadville, some of these alternative races. And in your story, he said that when he was on the starting line for these races, he felt nervous. He had butterflies in his stomach. He had excitement, a feeling that he hadn't felt in quite some time in the world tour road races, which had felt a little bit formulaic. Um, and then the other part of it was that he started to sniff around and talk to companies and realized that he could actually put together a privateer sponsorship package with uh, Canyon, Cliff Bar, a couple other sponsors that would uh, get him the revenue, get him the, the salary and the revenue that he would need to keep going as a, as a racer. And at the very least make it worth his while to walk away from the world tour where my assumption is that look you know when you're on a world tour road team your salary is probably going to be a bit higher than when you can put it together from privateer on gravel but you know if you're winning races and you're building in some incentives here and there i could i could envision a scenario in which um the income and revenue could definitely be worth your while um what was the sense that you got from peter talking to him about this decision, did it did it seem like it was a tough decision? Did he say it was a pretty it was a no brainer? What what sense did you get from him on this, Hoodie? Uh, it certainly wasn't easy. It was not an easy decision, but it was a decision like one of those life choices you make. You know, I'm going to get married. I'm going to have a baby. You know, it's a decision that uh, you know it's it's not an easy call to make, and sometimes you just have to kind of jump off that cliff of life to kind of make a life change, and so. He said it was knocking around in his head even already going back to last season, uh, well, this past year, 2019, where he did convince the folks at Trek Segafredo that make some space in his calendar. Uh, you know, looking at his calendar this year, 2019, I mean, he raced, I think, uh, close to 80 days, which is a lot of road days these days for a, a World Tour rider. You know, he raced from the Tour Down Under all the way through Guangxi in October. So, you know, he put in some miles on the road and actually had a pretty do- solid season, got some solid top 20 results. He was uh, a couple of big breakaways during the Welta and uh, was a key support rider through the Classics and some of the other big races he was at. Plus, you know, had some big success in his little foray into this alternative calendar. So, he was just jazzed and excited about it. It's like uh, starting a new job or, you know, changing. Uh, you know, imagine if we went from, uh, you know, leaving Belenus to going back to be a bartender. You know, imagine how, you know, <laughs> you know, take, talking about taking a pay cut. You know, we'd be taking a pay raise if we did that job. But, but uh, you know, be like, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to go move back to the ski town where I lived in college or whatever, something like that. For him, it was like going back to his kind of roots where he felt like, a racer again. He felt excited to be at the races. He said the great thing about these uh, gravel events is that you're there participating with all the public riders as well. I mean, the pros go off the front, but then, you know, the hacks like me and you, Fred, were racing the same race coming up behind, and then they're all having beers at the keg and the and the seri- uh, podium ceremony at the end. And Peter just said he loved it because it said it reminded him of his racing as a mountain bike, you know, back at, at a teenager raising, you know, growing up in Colorado. That's how that scene is. It's familiar. You're there with all your friends and your family and your buddies and the guys you're racing against, your guys you're training with all week. So he felt like it was just kind of like coming home in a lot of ways. And I think there was some personal reasons too. You know, he, he uh, so many years on the road, so many days away from home. You know, he kind of wanted to have more time to race uh, in the United States, be closer to home, closer to his family. And uh, and just the fact that he was so excited about it, he was taking this 
two world tour teams and saying, look, look what I did this year. I had strong success on the alternative calendar and performed very well and consistently across the world tour. I'm healthy again. You know, let's work out a deal. And he said he just kept running into some hurdles from kind of the old school European team managers. Just felt like that it was just uh, kind of a, a distraction. Or it would be it would take away from his complete focus and sacrifice of racing and performing at the World Tour. So he couldn't find really a team out there that would allow him to do this. And he said that he had offers to stay as a World Tour rider with no gravel racing at all. And he decided that just for his personal ambitions and where he is in his life right now, he wanted us to do this uh, gravel project. And plus the fact that you mentioned, you know, got. You know, put his word out, working through his uh, his agent, put some feelers out within the sponsor community, and got a lot of very positive uh, responses from sponsors. So, the kind of uh, the t- two parts of that package were his fa- uh, newfound passion, plus he had uh, some real financial kind of backing to help make this thing possible. Yeah, a couple things come to mind. First is that I talked to Pete in uh, May at the Tour of California, and I was asking him about BWR. About you know, he won Belgian Waffle Ride. And he was he was blown away. He was like, holy cow, the number of interviews that I've done and the amount of social media love that I got and the number of like photos of me that appeared in magazines and in websites after winning this Belgian waffle ride. He was like, that was bigger than anything I feel like I've ever done in road cycling. And so he, even at that point, the gears were starting to turn his head, I could tell. And he was like, yeah, you know, I'm talking to the team about letting me do more of this stuff because it's actually really good exposure. I think something that teams underestimate is the number of reporters and videographers and people, you know, both local, regional and international that are going to some of these races now. And just the amount of, um, just the amount of exposure that it gets, I, I said this on our podcast uh, earlier in the year when I was talking with Jason Kane. I'll say it again. I mean, the, just the Dirty Kansas race report was one of our biggest stories of the year. I mean, dwarfed race reports from like the Tour de France and, and some of the other uh, more traditional race reports that we do just in terms of eyeballs, like number of people consuming it. Um, the other thing is that I, I just think it's strange that a World Tour team manager would look at what he was wanting to do, especially after EF Education First had a number of riders embark on an alternative racing campaign in 2019, and, and they got a lot of praise for doing it. They were, you know, praised for being disruptive and different thinkers and, oh, my gosh, just going outside the box. And here's this guy who's willing and able and sort of pitching his services to be able to do both, and uh, teams wouldn't be interested. I guess that's a little – that's just – that's a little puzzling to me, Hoodie, especially in – in 2020 and just knowing what I know about the amount of attention that, uh, that gravel gets. Well, I think you're right. I think it shows kind of two things. One, it does kind of show how forward thinking the EF model has become. They are kind of rescripting a little bit about what a sponsorship deal looks like, you know, with EF education first is really one of the first sponsors that really come in to make a cycling team, the public face of their company. A lot of teams will just use it. Uh, a lot of sponsors will use a team to promote their product. It'll be a secondary sponsorship like Movistar. You know, it's part of their galaxy of sponsorships that Movistar, which is a big Spanish uh, telecom agency, you know, that's just part of what they do to promote their brand. But whereas with EF, you know, they have just come on and that is the, the face of their, of their company. And 
they're open to doing these kinds of things because it, for them, it's all about exposure and interactive with their customers and with their employees. So I think that's where EF kind of stands apart from the world tour kind of sponsorships right now. And on the other side of that coin, I think it's a reflection, at least the resistance from world tour managers about this whole idea is a reflection about how demanding and how intense the world tour racing has become. Um, the level of competition now is so high that it basically requires 24-7, you know, nine, ten months out of the year to be at the world tour. You have to be basically on the ball all the time. Now, I mean, the pros these days, you might get three weeks off in November, and that's really about it. And just the level of professionalism and really dedication and the competition both from within each team and from within these elite teams, you know, to win the tour, to win the world, to win the classics, man. It's like you got to be thousand percent committed eyes on that ball all the time and anything else like like what peter was saying the, the managers thought it, it's a distraction it's like we don't want to win dirty kansas we want to win perry robay <laughs> so there's no slack in the system but i mean i guess that's a very european way of looking at it which is okay perry robay but like uh, you know what about um I don't know, uh, La Flèche alone, or, you know, I'm just thinking of as a North American cycling journalist who looks at these metrics and yeah, I mean, is it harder to win Flesh alone or, uh, Dirty Kanza? Probably Flesh alone, but just the amount of exposure that winning Dirty Kanza would get your team and your sponsors, especially with all of these interested North American cycling fans who are, you know, who are interested in gravel. I guess that's a little puzzling to me. Something else that stands you, out. But do you, what's that? But you honestly think a, a Belgian sport director would care about who, you know, if you win the flesh we own, Fred, man, <laughs> that, that, that's a big deal. You win the dirty Kansas. Some French French sport director doesn't even know where Kansas is. Well, I, like I said, I mean, that's a European way of looking at it. That's, that's just the, that, that there illustrates the divide between what's going on in pro cycling in the United States versus what continues to go on in pro cycling in Europe, which is, you know, reverence for these big races that have been around forever and are very difficult to win. And there's a lot of cachet in winning them. And I think you can look at what has happened with gravel and say, okay, well, this is just a, you know, American cycling is going in a bit of a different direction right now. We can get into it. We'll get into it a little later. And when we talk more about uh, the tour of California going away and what impact that's having on the scene, but um, here is uh, a whole selection of these new races that are gaining popularity and a lot of people are interested in them and participating in them as well as who's winning them. And there is, you know, the interest in this amongst North American cycling fans is actually maybe surpassing the interest in some of the traditional Euro stuff. What I was going to say is something else that comes back to mind about this past year with the whole non-traditional racing um, schedule was that you know, I was writing a lot about this. And when EF announced that, hey, we're going to send some of our riders to um, some of these non-traditional races, I wrote a piece basically saying, that's great, but, you know, these guys are not guaranteed to win. Um, I know that some of the riders who specifically focus on Dirty Kanza and specifically focus on Red Hook Crit and some of these other non-traditional races that they were thinking about, it's like, yeah, these these guys are pretty strong and they focus entirely on this one event or on these groups of one events. And so, and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot that can, that, that has to come from um, trial and error at these races in terms of gear setup and pacing and strategy and stuff like that. So I, I think I said, I wrote a piece that was like, they're not guaranteed to win. 
And uh, I got some reply on Vodders from Vodders on Twitter saying, well, you know, winning isn't the point. We're not actually going there to win. We're just going there to sort of, you know, add to the scene and whatever. And I guess what I appreciated about Stetna is that when I called him up to ask him about it, he was unflinching. He's like, no, I am going there to win. I want to win these races. I look at something like the Dirty Kanza and I want to win it. I want to, you know, have the best gear, the best training, the best whatever, you know, think of it analytically like any other bike race and develop a plan to win. And I was, I was really psyched when I talked to Stetton about it because I was like, that's the right, I feel like that's the right attitude to have with these guys going to these races. It's like, it means more for the race if a world-class road racer like Peter Stetna is going there to put his best, best foot forward and try to win. And you know what? He won Belgian Waffle Ride, didn't win Dirty Kanza. I wrote about it on the site. He had that uh, big battle with Colin Strickland that was, you know, captured people's imaginations. And it was this great duel under the sun for a hundred miles. But, um, he, you know, these guys are not guaranteed victory at these big races, which I think is cool. Yeah, it was interesting talking to Peter, too, about that, exactly that kind of approach that he's going to bring to really the next season in 2020, because he said this year uh, he really was just kind of riding off of his world tour form, basically. He said he would kind of parachute into these races, didn't really have a lot of specific training. So especially it, it hurt him out at races like the Leadville 100 and the Dirty Kanza, which were just these longer bruising endurance races where, yeah, I mean, it translates into, you know, riding in a world tour event that's 220 Ks, but, you know, riding on the fat tire on the gravel road or the mountain bike, you know, it's a whole different kind of uh, effort. So he said that's what's going to be interesting for him, too, is I'll have to change his training and see how his body will adapt to these kind of new demands of his racing calendar for next season, where he said he's going to mix in, you know, he said he'll mix in. Uh, some gravel racing, some endurance mountain bike racing, as well as uh, he hopes to, you know, fit in a few road races as well. He said, you know, he said he's not going away. He's still going to be a professional rider, a full-time racer. He said it's not like some sort of uh, vanity project or some sort of uh, some sort of way to postpone his retirement. He still considers himself a full 100% professional racer. Yeah, and I think that speaks to something that has changed even in the last few years with American gravel and sort of this alternative racing calendar, which is that there's actually enough events now and enough big high profile events now that you can string together a pretty good racing campaign. You can race year round in gravel, mountain bike, and you know smaller regional road races if you want to. You can actually string together a decent amount of exposure for the sponsors and enough races to keep you focused. So I was writing down some names here. I mean, Belgian Waffle Ride, Rasputista, Land Run 100, Dirty Kansas, Crusher and the Tusher, this new Big Sugar gravel race that's going to be in Bentonville, Arkansas. There's the Steamboat Gravel, Leadville 100, um, and I'm sure I'm leaving out more and more, you know, a, a bunch of different races there. But it's like you start to add up the number of these races and, you know, you start to see a guy like Peter Stetna. It's not like one or two races for the whole year. That's a, that's a pretty good racing campaign. Yeah, he'll be busy. And he also mentioned who will be racing in some events in Europe as well. Uh, I don't have the names of those events right now, but he did mention that there's two or three events on his calendar in Europe as well. Because, you know, that, the scene's taken off really across the entire cycling community. You know, in Australia, it's getting big. In the Americas, uh, we're seeing events in Europe. And, you know, it kind of reminds me, Fred, I mean – you might have been around back in the day. I mean, I don't, you're, I'm a little bit older than you are, but I remember back in the day, the late 80s, early 90s, when mountain biking was really taking off. And you kind of get that feeling. It's a little bit like that sense of, 
uh, a new discovery for your you're a cyclist you know back in uh, in those when the mountain biking really took off it was such a boom for the industry um, I think we're seeing a little bit of that in the gravel right now and you're wondering if it's kind of almost a fad I mean people would get into it everyone's gonna buy their gravel bikes they'll start racing you know maybe in five seven years it'll hit that saturation point and then it will kind of start to taper off that's just a natural cycle of I guess the, of the business cycles but what, it, what it's doing is it's just energizing the kind of racing scene everyone's kind of getting into uh, riding their gravel bikes you know, it's safer. You're not out there riding, uh, out there riding in the traffic, and it's fun, man. These races are fun. It's a, it's a kind of racing that a lot of people can do. You know, you don't need, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, you ride a crit, man. You know, you're gonna break your collarbone sooner or later. And in mountain biking, you know, you have to be like a, you know, you have to have the technical skills to race on a mountain bike as well as the engine. You know, mountain biking is hard to race. So I think a gravel ride is a, is a race. You know, you can have those different levels in in, in during the day of the race. You're having uh, the pros and the semi pros up at the front. Then you got to group of riders coming in behind and you got even you know a, a shorter distance just for the the weekend warriors so it's a great scene it's really taken off and it's pumping a lot of energy into the racing seat and the bike industry yeah it, it's true and and so that's a good segue into the next point i wanted to talk about here which is after we had the news last week that the Amgen tour of california is going on hiatus and look those of us who know this sport well enough know what that means for big north american bike races very few of them come back from hiatus um we, I saw a lot of chatter online, and I even got some web letters basically saying, well, you know, that's just a sign that North American bike racing is dead, you know, or is dying. And, um, you know, I've was, I attended this, um, I was down in Colorado Springs this past week at USA Cycling's headquarters, and they had all the race promoters and a bunch of team directors from the Pro Road Tour out there. And we sat in a room and talked about what's going on with the scene and, um, again, you know, this topic of like, oh, is North American road cycling dead came up because two years ago we had all these stories around this time of year of a lot of the pro road teams being in trouble and either dissolving or having sponsorship problems or having to downsize. And again, this this story of oh, American cycling is dying kept coming up and up. And I've been trying to wrap my head around this thing because I don't actually think that North American cycling is dying. I think that, okay, maybe uh, world tour North American road races like the Amgen Tour of California have obviously died and are dying, and there's just not a sustainable model there. But when I look out at the landscape, I do see these disparate parts of American cycling, American bike racing, that are doing really strong and it's almost like someone smarter than me needs to find a way to unite these disparate parts into some type of scene or ecosystem that feeds the rest of the thing that, that helps create a more robust model. So I mentioned I was at this USA Cycling thing with all these race promoters. And, you know, there's this thought of, oh, pro road racing in the States is dying. Well, the funny thing is, is that a lot of the promoters for some of these big uh, regional road races and crits um, actually had really great stories of success to sell about robust regional sponsorship portfolios and participation numbers that were still pretty strong and, um, you know, big Cat 5 and Cat 4 fields and criteriums and citizens rides and grand fondos that they were putting on. And, you know, okay, maybe it's no longer the days of 
Navigators Insurance and Saturn and HealthNet battling each other week in, week out at, you know, Redlands and everyone following along. But it sounds like some of the regional pro races are actually doing pretty well. Then you look at the gravel thing. Obviously, the gravel thing's doing really well. Every six weeks, I feel like there's a new big-time gravel race being announced for 2020. Um, Nike is doing great. Bunch of new kids getting involved in the sport, coming in and mountain biking and learning to love competitive cycling and getting on bikes. Um, I did a story a couple months ago about how some of these races are innovating with new technology to drive down the cost of live streaming broadcast. Like that's a positive story to tell. Um, and then again, like these, you know, these regional pro races and people who are still passionate about road cycling and competitive cycling, it seems like that, okay, maybe there's been some erosion there, but it's not like the whole thing has gone away. And plus the, the track scene is doing very well with the USA Olympic team. Uh, they just came off their, uh, the road team just came off their most successful road worlds in a decade. Yeah. And we have a, a new generation of, uh, both men and women coming into the pro ranks. So it's not all doom and gloom out there. No, it's not all doom and gloom at all. And in fact, there's so many strong components of it that like to call it doom and gloom and to say that American bike racing is dying is just completely, you know, it's just neglecting so many of these bright spots. Again, what strikes me is like someone who's smarter than me needs to be able to like maybe draw one of those like mind maps like you see in uh, like a detective movie where the detective is like following somebody and they have like a like a yarn board on the wall, you know, where it's like the picture of the guy and then yarn goes over to another guy and goes over to the document and sort of like mind mapping it out, you know. <laughs> well, and it's, it's like you have this wall with all these like weird components of American bike racing that are strong and yarn connecting them all and some some zany insane genius sitting in their apartment looks stares at it for like, you know, 48 hours and comes up with the answer. That's my challenge so to you, listeners. <laughs> it sounds like sounds like you're the Zodiac killer there, Fred, yeah. trying, to, try, trying to map out your next uh, victim. Well, you know, it's always been the same problems, though, with, uh, with North American racing, trying to slot it in to fit in with the European calendar, right? It's like Tour of California was in February. It worked great there for a lot of reasons, and then moved it to Maine. It worked good there for other reasons, and losing out on, on some other side of the, of the equation there. And that's always been the, the kind of the big problem with, you know, where do you fit in a race? in North America that fits in with the European racing that you can still attract all the top pros. And that's, that's a, that's a problem that, uh, cycling has had here for 30 years and it's going to be a problem for the next 30 years. Yeah. And I almost wonder, it's it's not to say that regionally there aren't all kinds of interesting, uh, races and events out there because cycling at its core is a participatory event. It's like people ride their bikes. They don't want to watch people ride their bikes. They want to ride the bikes themselves and perhaps even do it on the same day. That's why the Grand Fondo scene is taking off. That's why, uh, you know, even things like uh, electronic bike racing, you know, with the, with the Zwift. It's like, because you can do it yourself. And I almost wonder if, you know, we need to let go of that thought for a while of trying to bring big European road racing over to the States in general and trying to get the Euro teams over here and try and just create another, um, just a different ecosystem. One that still has the ability to funnel young, talented kids up through the ranks that gives them opportunities to, you know, dream and hope of one day getting to the Tour de France, but also serves participant cyclists across the country who are interested in gravel and Grand Fondos and I don't know, the local crit scene and Zwift. It's almost like, like I said, we need to rethink the model in general over here. Um, of course, that will always create tension between uh, 
what goes on in cycling in North America and the uh, the rules and desires of the UCI, which is a European organization by and large. But uh, you know, I just look at I just look at too many success stories in North American cycling for me to really believe the argument that you know even road that even the argument that like road racing is dead here. Yeah, let's let's just hope that uh, you know there's lots of bright spots, and let's hope that something can perhaps fill that space that California had on the calendar, and you know maybe maybe this uh, gravel alternative racing trend will just kind of fuel a new base in, in American cycling, and then that will grow into something else. Well, Andy, we can hope and we can pray that gravel and some of these other uh, up and coming bright spots in American cycling do just that and help fuel the next generation and the next iteration of what American cycling is going to turn into. Uh, Well, Andy, I appreciate you chiming in today. We will catch up with you a week from now. But now let's uh, turn our attention to Patrick Redford from Deadspin and catch up with the interview I did with him. Uh, my guest today on the Velo News podcast is a guy who has written about cycling for audiences far larger than uh, us fans of Velo News. His name is Patrick Redford. He was at Deadspin for more than four years. And Patrick was a Swiss army knife of sports coverage, writing about everything from the NBA to rock climbing to soccer stories that I never really understood to also cycling. He was the author of such blogs as Let Me Explain This Hilarious Cycling Scandal to You, Dumbass Causes Gnarly Bike Crash While Just Walking Into, By Just Walking Into the Middle of the Race, and errant helicopter clauses real dumb bike crash. Patrick Redford, thank you so much for coming on the Villainous Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm sensing a, a strong theme in my work there. And if I had my way, you know, I would explain hilarious cycling scandals weekly. Those were just my favorite stories to write there. So the let me explain this hilarious cycling scandal focused on the Zwift cheating scandal that uh, took over bike media for an entire day where the champion of the great of British Zwift indoor esports, whatever you call it, uh, racing championships was disqualified for. I mean, just a really opaque, like... Like trying to like, like trying to explain it. I love that the blog was called "Let Me Explain This Hilarious Cycling Scandal." <laughs> just explaining it about how this guy had used an illegal simulator to unlock some glowing bike that he used in the championship competition, and someone went back in time and saw he, you know, there's a lot going on there. So I'm yeah, curious, none of the like, none of the nouns you... in that story are immediately parsable by um, the Deadspin audience in general. And so, you know, if the headline in the blog was sort of about British YouTuber who happens to moonlight as e-racing star, which is a sport for some reason, disqualified for Tron bike uh, tech manipulation scandal. I think about five people would have read that story. I know. And you nailed it with the headline. And I feel like you also <laughs> nailed it with just like like what it's about, like the explanation of how bizarre this story is, is what may suck a mainstream reader in. So, I mean, did... Did that one light up the airwaves? Were dead spinners just falling over to read about the Zwift Zwift scandal? You know, somehow they were, um, because I think it hits what made, you know, my favorite dead spin stories, which is it's very dumb, but in a very rigorous way. You know, like there's there's nothing sort of inherently interesting about, um, you know, a lot of the factors in that story. But when they all come together in such a breathless way and you have this dude doing a 16 minute YouTuber apology directly into the camera. Like 
the comedy of that sort of transcends the cyclingness of it all, which is sort of, you know, whenever we could find those little moments to bring to our audience, that was, you know, I was, I was all about that. I was very happy to do those stories. Well, I'm always curious about this as someone who writes about cycling for a cycling audience, but has written about cycling in the past for a mainstream audience. When I was a freelancer and I wrote a lot for the uh, Wall Street Journal, I was constantly pitching these stories about cycling, cycling culture, pro bike racing to the editors there. And I was always wondering, like, why some stories would get picked up. Others would not. They, they tend to love stories about doping and amateur cheating for some yeah. reason. I guess a question for you then is like, what are the what's the secret sauce from your experience that goes into a cycling story that's going to connect with the masses? So we, I mean, I had, I thankfully had the freedom of sort of writing about whatever interested me. Um, and I would write plenty of cycling stories I know would get you know, 6,000 readers or something, which is, you know, an order of magnitude below the average um, for any sort of in-depth blog, but it was something I cared about. However, like, the times I knew it would sort of blow up was when you have absurd things happening in the Tour de France in particular, because that was, you know, a traffic cash cow for us. Um, And also, like, these weird little scandals. Like, it doesn't necessarily even have to be about doping, but, like, you know, moto doping was, like, that was, I, I followed that story for about a month or so and wrote, you know, five or six blogs about it, and they're all quite popular. And I think like something that Deadspin has done particularly well, and there's a particular type of story, is um, just explaining in very plain terms, like it's it's all about characters essentially. And you know, and you can find these characters in cycling, and it doesn't really matter what sport they're doing, but if it's funny or interesting, our audience has shown the patience, I mean did show the patience to follow you down those trails if you made it worth their while. I think another element about cycling that um, helps connect with the mainstream is the fact that there's so much video of it now and so many ridiculous things happen during the field of play. So I'm watching this blog from uh, the 2018 Tour de France. A few asshole Tour de France fans took it too far today and it shows some idiot running alongside the front group and like patting Chris Froome on the back. Yeah, that was what, a year after um, there were all those big crowds and he had to run up the road in his cycling cleats, Yeah, right? Yeah, Yeah, and so... I mean, that was was that when he got punched? Because I remember, like, you know, obviously uh, Froome and Sky and Ineos now were big villains for us, um, and as they should be, and so we covered them very harshly. And their PR people were always yelling at me about being fair, and I was, and you know, to the point where if people are dicks to him, like we were obviously going to cover it in that way. Um, and I think because you know, people didn't really read the stories very much. I mean, you can look at the numbers; they're still on the website. Like the early. When I first started doing bike spin stories, you know, late 2015, no one cared about it. There really was no cycling coverage on Deadspin before. And it's really rewarding to see how we managed to sort of build up a following of, you know, otherwise uninterested Deadspin readers who, through the continued, you know, scrolling past and ignoring the headlines, finally found some things worth reading about. And, you know, I, I really I really enjoyed enjoyed being the being the sort of uh the Sherpa into this world, they would have otherwise no interest in. Like, you know, they trusted me to bring only the, I mean, not only because there were a lot of boring blogs I wrote too, but, you know, primarily like, I, I would point out when there was something worth their time, I suppose. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like having looked at these pages and pages of your blogs, you honed in on a lot of the elements of cycling that, yes, while ridiculous, also are 
parts of the sport that I always try to emphasize to my non-cycling friends when trying to explain it to them, which is like just how different and wild and kind of free it is compared to traditional sports where, you know, you're you're in a stadium and there's a rule book and there's decorum. And like, you know, if a pitcher looks at the batter funny, they're going to like, you know, that's like a big deal. Ooh, ah, ooh. And meanwhile, it's like in the Tour de France, like the guy who's winning the race falls off his bike and has to run alongside the road and fans are like throwing beer at people and just like the results are being influenced by these crazy outside factors that you know no one can control um it's it's it it always blows me away when it happens about how cycling is this like wild and free sport that like it really is at kind of the whims of like mother nature and the fans standing alongside the road yeah and the culture is so different and i think particularly because it's a sport that's so invested in its history you know like they're um like Eddie Merckx is still revered as a giant and all these races are always doing, you know, 30 year tributes to Cipollini or whoever. And so the sort of, I I really do appreciate that the lived history of the sport is so um, revered by its fans and so part of the culture every day. And I think that's like one of the things, I mean, obviously in baseball and basketball and football, like everyone knows who Jim Brown and Babe Ruth were, but there's not that direct connection. That's something I really did enjoy about cycling that I found unique. Oh man, I forgot this one about the video where the kangaroo <laughs> just completely annihilates the cyclist. Yeah, that was what, like a two sentence blog? You know, we could also, thankfully, because we didn't have to, um, I mean, I think we were freed by not having necessarily a niche audience sometimes, so we could just do dumb small stuff. We could explain things in a general way that, you know, you and Velenus couldn't necessarily do just because everyone knows, you know, who Matthew Vanderpool is or whatever. Yeah. And you know, we don't have, we don't have to spend three paragraphs explaining it to you, but I guess what I always appreciated of you, about your coverage, Patrick, is that, um, you always, you were succinct in your, um, explanations. Like you, a lot of times when I would read about mainstream cycling in like, you know, the guardian or even the New York times, it's paragraph after paragraph trying to explain the nuance and like wrap it in context. And like, I feel like you were, you are brief enough and succinct enough where like the reader is going to understand it, but you're not giving them too much information. I suppose you have to trust the reader, you know? (laughs) So let's get back in the Wayback machine. It's 2015. You come on board at Deadspin and you go to the editors and say, hey, look, there's this uh, niche sport, 100 years of great history, wonderful champions, amazing scandals, completely goofy uh, stories. Um, Puts people to sleep oftentimes because it's so boring. Uh, I want to write about it. What what was your pitch and what was their response? So I first started freelancing during the 2014 Tour de France. I had just graduated college and was furiously pitching every editor I could find. Um, and Tommy Craggs, who was still the EIC at the time, let me write about um, that very kind of not good Tour de France. I just got to write about, you know, nibbly dominating. I wrote a brief uh, Nairo Quintana profile, and I think it sort of fit their mold of, you know, we're not necessarily going to be all things to all people. We're not going to be, you know, like, we're not the New York Times. We're not going to be the authoritative voice in who won the race or not, but there is, there is like, a, a crucial part of the model was allowing enthusiasts to, like, geek out and kind of do their thing and so you know those uh those blogs did weirdly good traffic i think just because there was no bike riding on deadspin whatsoever um and then as i came on as a weekend and night person um i found you know thankfully the moto doping scandal happened right as i was about to transition into full-time employment there and so i think my bosses kind of saw ah perhaps there is there is something in this you know 
<laughs> and then as you progressed there, I mean, did you find yourself refining your coverage, like kind of, you know, honing in on what made a deadspin cycling story? Yeah. So, you know, I uh, initially had the you know, inkling because I wasn't as experienced in writing stories every day and working with an editor and pitching and all that good stuff. Um, I wanted to do a lot of, you know, boring shit. I wanted to write just like, here's what the spring classics are like, Hey, Barry Bay, that's a cool race. Um, and so as I kept, as I kept going and, um, you know, working on my approach, I realized you have to just take very specific angles. Like I would talk about Roubaix through the prism of, um, a Sunday in hell and just sort of do like a film review slash look at this weird bike race. Um, and thankfully we had, I mean, we had the luxury of ultimate freedom. That's why, you know, it was my favorite place to work and why it was a dream job is because you could kind of write about whatever you wanted. And so within this big world of bikes with no one else really competing for stories um, at the site or in like the mainstream American media, I kind of had the luxury of picking and choosing whatever I wanted, whether it was news or a weird feature or talking to some pro Conti team about going to Iran Um the, the the wide breadth was really it was really refreshing. Now you bit off a lot of controversial topics, which I appreciated, <clears throat> and I know from my own experience when writing about controversial topics in the bike space, uh, the cycling fans tend to be pretty feisty on Twitter. I, I wouldn't claim to say we have the feistiest group of uh, niche sports <laughs> fans out there on Twitter, but here's a question for you. I mean, how in your experience? Did cycling fans compare to other niche sports fans in terms of their just uh, get swimming in your mentions and like lobbing bombs at you? They're delightful, man. Like I've pissed off. Um, I mean, I've pissed off MMA Twitter a couple times, and they are just the most intolerable group of online people ever. Um, like I, I called, I called some minor league MMA organization a minor league MMA organization. And I had, you know, half the UFC roster yelling at me and just thousands and thousands of people. And it was, it blew me away. With cycling, it was only ever British and Irish fans and uh, big Team Sky fans who would yell at me, but like very politely. They would often send me, you know, considerate 400 word emails couching all their uh, criticisms. And, well, I understand, you know, it's a harsh time. And then some people would just sort of be like, you know, respectfully, sir, I disagree with your take about albuterol or whatever. And, um, and they, were, they were always, you know, wonderfully pleasant to deal with, mostly because I'm used to just the really bad stuff. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'd heard before uh, that, yeah, the UFC fans could be, or just Ultimate Fighting fans, MMA fans in general, can be a little Incredible. Uh, fiery. And, like, they get pissed even if you're writing, if you're a mainstream writer writing about their sport, just, like, not even in a critical way. Just, like, if you could yeah. venture in there, they're like, If you're yeah. a filthy casual, that's the worst thing you can be, which is so funny with most other sports. Like, hockey has the, the self-deprecating slogan, please like my sport. You know, they're begging for people to write about it. But there's just something about I – mean, and I guess it's sort of the fan base that's been actively encouraged by, um, you know, the powers that be. But, like, there's – you know, they only want the most elite – I mean, it's, it's pro wrestling nonsense. But this isn't an MMA podcast, so. <laughs> you could just imagine some shit-headed <laughs> man, like sweaty man, screaming at you. Well, I guess that is something that I have noticed with cycling fans on Twitter, which is that when someone like you – or, you know, definitely like Jason Gay dips his toe in every now and again. Yeah. People tend to be, tend to be very appreciative. And maybe there's a little correcting going on, but really yeah. it's sort of a like, hey, thank you for – shining a microscope on my favorite sport today. I love it so much. I hope other people get to love it as much as I do. Thank you, sir. Oh, and by the way, 
um, you know, Chris Froome's Welta is still pending, uh, you know, uh, looking at the self-butamol, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, it's like, I, I respect your take. However, if you look at stage 16 of the 2017 Giro, where Nairo won, based on snow disqualifications, he, in fact, should not have picked up the three minutes he did. However, great blog. Thank you very much. We love you. <laughs> like, honestly, though, I, I wrote, I, cycling stories were a very small uh, percentage of my output, probably, mm-hmm. you know, less than 5%, but I got the most... I mean, the most positive feedback and feedback in general from people who didn't get to read about it at other major publications. And I'm, I'm under no illusions that I was, you know, the best cycling writer, even a particularly good one, considering like the whole field of everyone who works for the cycling only media outlets. But I think just because we spoke to such a different and larger audience, everyone was appreciative of that, which is really cool to see. You know, I, I, I dig that. Well, there you have it, cycling fans. I appreciate it too. <laughs> now, you know, my, I guess my advice is that whenever any other uh, mainstream journalist dips the toe into cycling, it does so in a way that is completely non-offensive like Patrick over here did with his great blogs about, you know, dumbasses causing crashes and stuff. Like give him a little social media love, pat him on the back, send him a happy face emoji. But not Jason Gay. Call him a filthy casual. Tell him I sent you. He'll love it. That's true. God, he's such a <laughs> noob. Uh, okay, Patrick, let's let's move on from your bike blogging. I want to hear the story of Deadspin because you know some uh, listeners may not be as interested in this as I am, but you know Deadspin was one of my favorite sports blogs, and over the last uh, half year or so, um, the thing kind you know. It's it basically melted down. It went through an ownership change bought by a private equity firm called Great Hill Partners. They installed new CEOs and managers who uh, seems like pissed everybody in the staff off, um, fired the interim editor-in-chief Barry Pacheski, who'd been there for a, a long time. And um, basically everyone on staff decided to quit all at the same time. Um, you know, I want to dig into this uh, entire timeline, but I guess a, a good place to start is, you know, April 2019 when um, Hill Partners takes over. Um, did you guys have any inkling at the time that, you know, it was going to be this really bad fit for Deadspin? Well, that's kind of the funny thing. We kind of, you know, because Univision had owned us for um, two and a half years since Gawker went bankrupt um, in April 2016. And Univision took over right before the election, so I guess I think September. Um, and because we were this very small part of this seven billion dollar portfolio, which had been saddled with all this debt problems because they bet big on live TV right before the recession and right before cord cutting, we were sort of constantly under siege. And it was it was very baffling because the Gizmodo Media Group, as it was known back then, sites, you know, were in a vacuum profitable. However, because we were part of this huge portfolio management clamped down on us. There were um, occasional layoffs. There was a big wave of buyouts. And eventually they sold us for, I don't remember what the exact figure was, but they bought Gawker for a buck 35 million and they sold us at a heavy loss. Um, and so we thought, I mean, initially and optimistically and incorrectly, as it turned out, we thought that being bought by um, a smaller firm who bought us at a discount, they would be happy to you know, take this distressed asset, give us what we needed and find the profit that was very obviously there without their mismanagement. And, you know, at the time, uh, we met with Jim Spanfeller, the CEO, um, and we had a couple all hands, and he seemed at least initially very receptive to say, you know, I have my doors always open. You can talk to me. Um, we like the sorts of stories you're doing. We want to go bigger on, you know, investigations, more original reporting. We just thought, you know, finally, um, the, the, the Univision days are behind us. This can only be a good thing. It was not. Now, 
For listeners who may not be familiar with Deadspin, it was one of the most popular sports blogs out there, not just for covering sports, but because of the unique voice, the blending of um, humor, um, investigative reporting, writing about sports, but then also the intersection between sports and culture, sports and politics, um, lots of topics outside of sports, sports and food, or just food. Um, yeah. The fact that that was a sports blog where, you know, sports got you in the door, but there were all these other written pieces about culture and food and politics and fashion and just goofy things written in this amazingly uh, funny voice that that's what got people to come back. And it seems like one of the points of contention, points of tension here was that um, maybe like Great Hill didn't like know that. <laughs> like maybe the people yeah. who bought it actually didn't realize what made Deadspin a success. You know, it's 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 very baffling. And uh, Deadspin, I think, achieves popularity simply because we actively eschewed bullshit as much as possible. Um, like we didn't really treat our readers like dum dums and do you know a bunch of slideshows and here's one amazing trick to do whatever. Um, it was a certain honesty and a certain freedom that all the writers had to just write about kind of what they cared about. Um, and sports obviously very, very obviously does not stop when the players leave the locker room. You know, there's this whole other, you know, the, the entire sports is the world, you know, there's publicly financed stadiums for billionaires. There's sexual harassment policies in all these major Olympic organizations. There's the NFL's, you know, decision to turn to this extrajudicial body and, and you know, adjudicate suspensions for, arbitrary reasons like these are all sports connected stories but simply reporting the news of who won the game or whatever is an active disservice to readers who you know engage with sports so much and could therefore stand to like learn about the world and everything affecting them so that was the general pitch of deadspin does that does that seem right yeah and it sounds like that as this uh, new marriage went forward over the course of uh, several months the new owners really didn't appreciate that didn't like the stories that touched on some of these topics or on topics that were outside of the sports. Um, in August, your acting editor-in-chief, Megan Greenwell, resigned after um, a staffer, Laura Wagner, p- published a, a great investigative piece about the owners, which <laughs> I, yes. was, I was like, holy cow, uh, you know, sports website pu- publishes investigative piece about sports website's owners. It was a good blog, too. It was it was it was clean. It was fair. I mean, they gave Jim way more time than he deserved to answer those questions, which he did in a really wild forty five hundred word email to all the staff, which is basically to the public because obviously it was going to get leaked at some point. Um, But I mean, there were a couple points of tension with Great Hill from the start. Um, And one of them was the no reporting on ourselves. I mean, so they 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 came in. They tried to institute all these blanket policies very quickly, including, you know, a dress code, mandatory drug testing, um, all these things from this really wild employee handbook, which we figured out within 10 minutes was just copied and pasted en masse from some form employee handbook. Um, And, you know, really incredible stuff there. The other was the now infamous stick to sports memo. Um, They told us, you know, stick to sports. You can write about President Trump being booed at a World Series game because that intersects with sports, but things that are not directly tying into sports you cannot cover. And if you're saying that to our staff at this point, then you're – you just have a fundamental misread of what we do. Like non-sports stories traffic-wise outperformed pure sports stories consistently forever. We were having our biggest traffic months ever in 2019 
um, through the summer too when there aren't sports happening and we write a bunch of movie reviews and all this other stuff. Um, yeah, like I remember watching a video of one of your coworkers, Dan Quaid, petting a yes. enormous kitty cat. Like, <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because Jim apparently was pissed about that. Like that video, this 28-pound cat infuriated him. He was so mad at this cat and then we put it on our site. And, you know, to Megan's credit, she had been – she had been dealing with these edicts behind the scenes and sort of keeping, keeping their layer of management nonsense from the staff. Um, and so she was asked in August. And Barry was fired two months later in October um, for, uh, you know, the, they sent another memo that says stick to sports, blah, 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 whatever. And so we did a day of non-sports stuff. We had, you know, blogs about a pumpkin thief. Uh, Dom Costantino, our wonderful NFL writer, broke down tape of a bear you know, entering a motel, you know, good pad level, not very explosive, but some serious strength on him. You know, we're just, have, it's what we've always done. We put in the skybox some of our greatest, you know, non-sports stories hits, like a, a blog about um, the man who played Vigo the Carpathian in one of the Ghostbusters movies that did, you know, a million views and is one of the greatest stories ever published on Deadspin. If you don't understand that there's a value in that and that our readers, like there's, there's such a loyalty to the website that our readers feel, then like, why would you buy it in the first place? And then in, I would say, one of the more amazing uh, American media moments of the last 10 years, um, after Barry Pacheski is fired, you guys all made the decision to leave with him. So set the scene for me. Where are you? What's the conversation like? Take me through this. Um, oh, I guess you were not there. I mean, you live, you work remotely. Yeah, I was, which- I was in the woods. So I've worked remotely you know, the entire time. I've spent probably... Two, two, three weeks in New York total. Um, oh, and I just happen to be visiting. <laughs> I know, it's great. Just live in San Francisco, grab a bike around Golden Gate Park. It's a nice life. But anyway, I was visiting my girlfriend down on the farm where she lives in a very remote part of Southern California. Um, and so I was, it was this very strange disconnect between, you know, peaceful outdoor nature space and then just absolute turmoil at work. And so Barry gets fired Tuesday. Um, I guess th- there's another crucial piece of context here, which is that um, Jim and the rest of the management side put these just horrible autoplay, unmutable video ads all over our website, which is something straight out of like the 2009 internet that hasn't been, that's this actively alienated readers that people don't do it anymore. Um, so we did that. We all published a post on all the sites saying, hey, the ads are bad. We think the ads are bad. We had nothing to do with it. Was that um, post part of some like uh, sponsored content piece for the advertiser? You know, it's just like integrated, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the ad modern, was playing on those posts, yeah. Modern advertising. And they did good traffic. So maybe maybe we, own, we put ourselves in the corner. But So we, we post those posts and say management wants to hear your feedback. And then within a couple hours, we can see that um, our CTO, Jesse Knight, deleted all those posts, just pulled them, put them back into drafts. And... You know, the deletion of a post is, you know, Gawker, Gawker had a really big blow up over this four years ago. And the deletion of a post is the, one of the strongest possible red lines to cross. And so that was happening at the same time as the stick to sports memo. And because we had been told to stick to sports several times and sort of, you know, we thought the arrangement was like, yes, you have to say this. And, but we're obviously not going to do that because we've never done that. We thought the bigger crisis was the deletion of the post. And so then Barry was fired over the stick to sports memo. And we had a meeting directly after we all, um, we all conference called in, all the remotes were on video and it became very clear that a site that would fire Barry over that and delete posts over nothing was not something we could get behind. And so it, it was, it was fairly immediate that it became clear that there was going to be a mass defection. Um, and then over the next day, 
you know, it became very clear. We were meeting with the rest of our union about any possible actions. It became clear there wasn't really a, a drastic route that was going to be taken. We all quit. And this was right after, on Wednesday, a meeting with Paul Maidman, our editorial director, where he came in the room thinking, I'll simply uh, smooth this all over, tell them to get back to work, and it'll be fine. Our minds were made up then. We have the meeting, and then five minutes after, the emails start rolling in. And by Friday, every single one of us had quit, including people with kids. Drew McGarry, who has you know serious medical issues after you know he fell and hit his head and almost died last year. Like the bravery of those people to walk away from this job because of you know because of they believed in it so much and they believed in our coworkers and supported Barry. Like it's 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 genuinely amazing. Um, so we all left. Yeah, and that's so that's a that's a question I have for you. How, how old are you, Patrick? I'm 27 and a half. Ah, you're young, you're a young kid. No, uh, so I, you know, I've worked in media my whole career. I worked in New York City media. Um, I've been laid off from jobs. Um, I've wanted, I've applied for jobs at Deadspin before. I've always held Deadspin up as a great site that I always love to read and thought, you know, you guys did amazing work. And um, I, as you guys were resigning from this position, the question I kept asking myself again and again was like, wow, would I have the cojones to do this? Because I have a kid now. Um, I know how difficult it is in the media space right now, how, you know, big major publications are laying people off and letting people go. Good people are losing jobs. And to, you know, draw a line in the sand, which you guys didn't said, look, this is, you know, this crossed the line to the degree that, you know, we don't want to work here anymore. This regression will not stand, man, as it were. Will not stand. I mean, was there, <laughs> well, like, take me through, like, I guess the, the personal emotional journey of going from being mad to being ready to resign, knowing that it's a, it's a tough world out there. I mean, I think being on the farm honestly helped because it all felt very abstract to me, but I, there, there came a point pretty quickly where on Tuesday when, Bar when Barry's fired and the walls are coming down. And, you know, I think people sort of fundamentally misunderstood the terms of what Great Hill wanted. There was always hope that, you know, they'll just reinvest and the sites will be profitable and then they'll flip us and sell it to someone else. And we should have seen this when Megan was um, basically forced out, which is that their explicit model is to find this undervalued asset, squeeze what you can, strip and sell it for a quick buck. And so, I mean, we, we know that these are not, people who care about journalism or care about us were just numbers in a spreadsheet to them. And once they delete posts and fire Barry, I just, there was no way I could write another blog for them. I couldn't, I, it was, it was completely, it was, it wasn't going to happen. I think everyone else felt that way. And like, you know, we had this meeting and it was made very clear to everyone that like, if you choose to stay, that's your choice and it's fine. Like, we'll support you. You're not a scab. Like you have kids, you know, Dave McKenna's got two kids. Drew's got three kids. You know, if you need to keep this job and the health insurance, that's, a completely valid choice to make. Um, and so it, it was, it was always sort of up to us. But then once, once I, you know, once I sort of realized that a lot of my editors and our leadership and my closest friends were going to quit, that it was, it was no place for me anymore. And so it, it was a hard decision. It was, it was my dream job. Um, and it was, it was the hardest thing I've done. And, you know, the, the outpouring of support, um, from the public, from Bernie Sanders, who said Jim Spanfeller is a vulture online, which is wonderful. Um, for everyone else, has been genuinely heartwarming. And I think, you know, once uh, we're all stable and on our feet, um, 
elsewhere that we'll be able to look back on it more with pride, but it was a hard thing. Yeah, I can only imagine. And, um, you know, I always appreciated reading your bike takes and takes on rock climbing and all these other things. And I, I saw you as a guy with a really good perspective on lots of different sports. And so to lose that voice, um, you know, I mean, we all, we all suffer from it. Um, I look, I, I give you lots of credit for having the bravery to do that. Again, I keep asking myself if I would be able to do that in a similar situation. I have a kid, you know, I, like I said, I've been on the outside looking in and it not fun. So the fact that all of you, you know, felt so strongly about this to make that decision, um, you know, I, I, I give you, you all a lot of credit. Yeah. I mean, I, I really do appreciate that. Um, you know, thank you for reading and for supporting us. But I think another thing is it, it, be, it had become clear for months that there was no real future for us under Great Hill. It was either going to be they, they sell us or um, the site just kind of slowly dies. And, you know, maybe it's naive, but all of us who worked at Deadspin really believed in the Deadspin project. And if it was going to just turn into some zombie shell of itself, like that's to, I mean, to us, and we're lucky enough to be able to say this as one, but that's, that's not something we could get behind. And well, so here we are. Uh, well, I suppose it also frees you up then, Patrick, to like, r- to come up with all of the amazing bike <laughs> blogs and bike story ideas that you were never able to write for Deadspin that you can now write for Velo News. <laughs> you know, that's not a bad idea. So let's see here. We got Perhaps. Matthew Vanderpool just completely annihilating um, all the cyclocross people. Uh, we have American pro uh, UCI racing completely cratering. We have gravel racers. Um, gravel just, racers. Yeah, it's a lot, of, a lot of stories out there for you to sink your teeth into, buddy. Yeah, McNulty profile. That'd be a good one. Yeah, yeah. McNulty. Um, another question I have for you, and this is totally off topic. Uh, you were the person who was on the beat of the Mad Pooper right? The mad pooper. Yes. So this was a story that, uh, as a Coloradan, I followed closely, uh, apparently down in Colorado Springs, a few years back, there was a jogger who was, uh, defecating in people's front yards. That's uh, very true. Um, like regularly. And there one was, woman like, in particular was, uh, targeted multiple times. <laughs> and you were on the, you were on the blog, you, uh, wrote about it. And I think, you guys even put the APB out there of like, if you have any information about who may be this mad pooper. Yeah. I called the Colorado Springs police department so many times they told me to please stop contacting them. They'd let me know if they had more information. Um, and the police, the PIO only answered his phone cause I have a nine one six number and we're both from Sacramento. And so if he'd been, you know, they've been inundated with calls. Um, but I think, you know, I was very close to figuring it out who it was and, Tim Marchman was very close to approving the budget to send me to Colorado Springs for a week to try to track down and find the mad pooper. And unfortunately it didn't come together, but you know, that was a, that was a fun story to a fun and very dumb story to pursue for a month. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of endurance athletes out there, maybe who <laughs> run. And, uh, you know, if you have, if you know the identity of the mad pooper, uh, yes, search Patrick out online. Uh, well, again, Patrick, doors always open. If you want to write about cycling for us, I always appreciated your voice, your reporting and the stories you chose to do. So no matter what the future holds for you, um, keep us, keep us in mind. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, thanks for talking to me as always. All right, Patrick. My guest was Patrick Redford of Deadspin, uh, who wrote the bike spin element uh, of the site. 
with such amazing stories as Zwift cheating and ridiculous crashes. There's a great one too of like uh, cyclists punching each other in the head. Just whenever something wacky in cycling would happen, you were on the beat. Our audience loves dumb stuff. 